listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baron Fig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Jim Bianco. Jim is president and macro strategist at Bianco Research. Since 1990, his commentaries have offered a unique perspective on the global economy and financial markets. Unencumbered by the biases of traditional Wall Street research, Jim has built a decades-long reputation for objective, inclusive commentary that challenges consensus thinking. Previously, he was a market strategist in equity and fixed income research at UBS Securities, an equity technical analyst at First Boston and Shearson Lehman Brothers. He's a chartered market technician and a member of Market Technicians Association. He holds a BS in finance from Marquette and an MBA from Fordham University. Enjoy my conversation with Jim Bianco. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. So as listeners know, the first question I like to start off with is take us back to the global financial crisis. Uh, 2007, 2008, up until that point, we saw SNL crisis collapse and bailout of long-term capital management. Uh, Russian crisis coincided with that in 98. A lot of things along the way, but nothing was like that so-called 100-year storm. So 
um, once in a hundred year or once in a lifetime. So take us back in what you were doing back then and what was going uh, through your mind. Well, what I was doing back then is exactly what I'm doing now. And I'd even go all the way back to long-term capital management. I was still doing exactly what I'm doing now. I was still sitting in the same chair that I was doing. Well, I actually got a new chair, but it's in the same spot that it was. Because I've been doing, you know, Bianco Research or its predecessor, which is I was the director of research for Arbor Research, which is my marketing partner and my affiliated company, uh, for 29 years. So I've been doing this since 1990. So at least at the top of the, at the, top of the show, I'd say, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, rock of stability here, man. Nothing changes with me. I've just been <laughs> motoring along, doing the same thing decade after decade and enjoying the hell out of it, too, I might add, as well, not regretting any of, any of it. Now, in 2008, what was I doing in 2008? I was watching, like everybody else, the mortgage market, and I was astonished, um, I might add, kind of like I am today with the virus, at the complacency that I saw in, let me back you up to 2007, because there was some real structural issues going on in financial markets in 2007. We had the February 2007 uh, smash in the market where we were down almost 4% a day. And that actually was the day that we coined the phrase uh, risk on, risk off. I remember that that was the first time I ever heard that phrase. And and it was on CNBC, and they were actually giving the definition of that phrase. That that told you how new it was. Yeah. It it all came off off of, uh, uh, I think a week earlier. We had what what I ref, I've referred to always as patient zero, and that is um, uh, HSBC's uh, subprime lending arm um, is uh, announced that they were going to have to revise their 2006 annual statement because of losses and subprime. And of course, that was always the big thing that everybody looked at each other and said, what's a subprime loan? Uh, and we quickly learned that. We quickly learned what that was. We had the inability of um, money market funds to price themselves in the summer of 2007. We had the Bear Stearns funds go bust in the summer of 2007 uh, as well, too. We had definite signs of the housing market peaking. We had plunging interest rates. I mean, if any of this sounds familiar, and the stock market just kept making new highs. And it was, you know, and we were asking the question, what's going on here? Because everything else seems to be very consistent one way. Stock market seems to be going off in another direction. And as I like to say, and then 2008 happened. So when you ask me about the financial crisis, that was the first thing that always jumps out at me was the inconsistencies that I saw within markets that eventually got resolved in 2008. Yeah, and fast forward to present day, we see debt built up in different areas. I just saw the credit card debt, U.S. consumer credit card debt topped a trillion dollars, and we have excess in, in corporate debt. Where do you see the excess built up now and as far as some of the reforms that have gone through the banking system with Dodd-Frank, how are you looking at things now? This cycle is more driven by central banks than it has been driven before. Um, in 2007-8, the run-up and the initial problems were not directly tied to central banks. 
the response to them actually came in the second half of that. But this time around, it is central banks. And let me be clear when I talk about central banks. I like to use the phrase that all central bank stimulus is fungible, meaning doesn't matter if Bank of England or the CCB or the Bank of Japan or the Fed uh, is doing it as long as it gets done. And the best metric to look at central banks' influence on the markets is to look at global central bank balance sheets, add them all up together, and look at it against the world stock market or look at it against the, um, uh, a metric of global interest rates. That fits a lot better than looking at the Fed to U.S. rates or the ECB to German rates or the BOJ to Japanese rates, that there is this undertow that you seem to be getting from the central banks. So when you ask about the debt buildup, I, I immediately turn to the government because it's been government debt that has been exploding higher. And the great enabler has been the biggest influence on government debt, which has been the central banks. And that's more than just the Fed in the U.S. It's also the ECB in Europe. It's also the BOJ in Japan as well, too. So that's been allowing all of this to go on. And if you were to draw that to the U.S., you know, we're now, you know, running trillion dollar deficits. And it's not even an issue anymore. No one seems to care. Part of the reason why is because we've got a buyer with a printing press that is, is, his job is to make sure that there is no hiccups in this market, see what happened with the repo market in September, that they will step in and aggressively smooth out any inconveniences. So that's been allowing this debt buildup to go on. So this cycle, I think, has been more about central banks and because it's been more about central banks, it's been more about government debt than it has been about corporate debt. Corporate debt was the, definitely the cycle going into 2008. Right. And when you look at the balance sheet, obviously they had to inject a bunch of liquidity back in 2008. And they took the balance sheet all the way up to $4.5 trillion from the $800 billion that where it was. People have argued even if the balance sheet grew with GDP, it would still be around, I don't know, between 1.2, maybe one and a half trillion. But right around, I guess it was 2011, 2012, we just, instead of rolling off the balance sheet, they, they just started increasing it. How are you looking at it now? I know you've made some comments about the way that the balance sheet gets unwound is with a tick up in inflation or right. rates. Yeah, uh, as far as the balance sheet goes, you're right. And, and you know, and I've, I've tried to be fair with the Federal Reserve uh, as well with that, too. And what I mean by that is that what they did in 2007 and in, in 2008, uh, I've said I'm not going to complain that in the middle of the crisis that Bernanke at least initially ran the balance sheet from $800 billion to $2.5 uh, trillion. And um, I, in fact, I've even gone as far as to say I'd give them the Nobel Prize in economics for the way that they handled that. But then in September of 2009, they tapered their purchases of the balance sheet. And by March of 2010, they were out. They were out. They were done. There was QE was over. It was then the stock market in 2010 sold off 15%. And then Bernanke ran the Jackson Hole in August of 2010, and he basically gave a speech which was now known as the speech to announce that QE2 was coming. 
that's when they went off the rails at that point. All right, you did it. You got us through the crisis. You got everything kind of patched back together and you got out and you were done. But then you went back in in the fall of 2010 and to this day, you're still in 10 years later as well. So by my mind, that's what the mistake was made by the by the central bank is that they went they went too far. You're right. If if we had gone with where the balance sheet should be, if they had never done this, it'd be at about a one and a half trillion. But because of Dodd Frank, they they made the rules a little bit more stringent. It'd be closer to two to two and a half trillion. We're still over four, so there is still a ton of liquidity in the market, at least by the conventional measures, that there's liquidity in the market. Right. And you've talked in the past about some of the disinflationary forces. One ex- one really great example you talked about was with a car. Nowadays, you know, you buy a brand new car and you put gas in the car and you, you drive it and, you know, maybe you change the oil once or twice a year and that's pretty much it. And so that's just one example which really shows you can look at the iPhone, you can look at kind of all these things. So is is that how you're kind of looking at, how are you looking at the inflation versus the deflationary kind of scenarios? Yeah, what you're talking about there is what is known as the hedonic adjustments. Uh, I have argued, I understand hedonic adjustments. You buy a car today, and you're right, it, it, it works. It has more technology than your computer. It, it has more safety than it did previous models. And so every time you look at the price of the car, you need to adjust the car's price for the improvement in quality and in the improvement in features, hedonically adjusted. No problem with that I have. Where I have a problem is they only do that largely with products because you can look at a car or a washing machine and say, well, this washing machine used better bearings or it has other features, so it's 2% better than last year's model. And since the price went up 2%, the really effective price is unchanged. Okay, I'm with you there. But why don't you hedonically adjust services? You know, getting a doctor's appointment or sorting out a problem with my cable bill or something. And the reason you don't do that is that that concept when you go to services is next to impossible to do. Uh, because it's so much subjectivity in it. And I've argued that you would probably see the opposite if you did services, uh, that it's getting worse. You know, that you, you, it's harder and harder to get services. They just push you off on a website or into some voicemail jail in order to fix your problems. Or you talk to Johnny from Bangalore to get your problem fixed. Uh, and that is not being hedonically adjusted. So on the one hand, the, the hedonic adjustments are, I think the idea is right. I think they do it right. They just need to do it for everything, not just what they can. It should be an all or none type of, uh, of thing. The other thing I think that's happening with inflation is substitution. Uh, technology has made things really change quite a bit. Uh, 30 years ago, when I was still sitting in this chair 30 years ago, if you wanted to buy a sweater, you had to go to the local department store. And if the local department store raised the price of a sweater, uh, you know, you could grouse and you can moan, or you could get in your car and drive to the next town and go to their department store. But you probably didn't do that and you bought the sweater. Today, every option I have to buy something 
I could go online and I can find 50 choices. And I can sort them. I'm thinking like in Amazon terms. I could sort them from lowest to highest. So I have a brother-in-law who's, who's in the internet selling business. He sells apparel and footwear online, also in brick and mortar stores too. And he's uh, said to me on many occasions that you price your product one penny higher, one penny higher than your competition. Everybody sorts from lowest to highest price. You're not in the top three or four because you're a penny higher. You don't yeah. get the sale. You don't get the sale. So this, this competition of substituting, I could substitute it into somebody else, has been insanely keeping prices down. And that has probably been the biggest impact on why we don't see inflation. Go ahead, raise your price. I'll go online and I'll find 30 other people that sell the same thing and somebody sells it cheaper and I'll buy it from them. And that's why you can't raise your price. And that's why I think we've had a real lid on inflation over the last uh, you know, 15 years or so. Yeah, and we've had this debate uh, in the financial community kind of about how inflation is measured. And when you look at obviously healthcare costs and things like student tuition, and when you even look at asset price inflation has been brought up and you know you've talked in the past about how the fed measures their inflation target yeah um the fed picked core pce personal consumption expenditure uh, actually be to be fair about to the fed in january of 2012 the fed picked pce as their metric mm-hmm. but they've left kind of unknown whether or not it's really headline PCE or core PCE. Mm-hmm. They, you know, in their talks, they kind of go back and forth with that. The big difference is whether or not you're including energy prices. It also kicks out food, but food prices have been relatively stable over the last 10 years and mm-hmm. haven't been that big a deal. So it's really whether or not you're, you're counting energy prices in it uh, as well. The big problem that the Fed has had with that is that they assigned a target of 2%. And on a core basis, they've only been above the January 2012 is when they put their target in place. Uh, and they've only been above it one month. They hit 2.11% in January of 2018. Every other month since 2012, at least at a core level, they've been below their target. And now they're doing this giant review. And then they're talking about moving to an average interest rate regime. Oh, no, two is not our target. Two is the average, so we'll let it run a little above two, a little below two, and we'll try an average two. Well, wait, you can't get above two. And I've actually said to Fed guys, and I'll, I'll say to the way I've said to Fed guys, look, I'm a 57-year-old businessman. If you want to put a high bar in front of me at seven feet, I'm going to come in probably about three or four feet under it if I tried to high jump. And then if you want to have an argument whether or not we should raise it to seven six, it doesn't matter. You're not getting over the target in the first place. So why are you talking about running a little bit above it or a little bit below it is, is what they're winding up doing right now. And so I think that part of this debate that the Fed is having with their target, look, it's fine if you want to use corn PCE or PCE versus CPI. PCE runs about 30 to, 40 ba- 30 to 50 basis points lower. You would just use a target that's 30 or 50 basis points lower. Uh, as well, too. But to have this insane debate about, well, 
you know, we can't get over the seven-foot high bar. We're three feet under it. Maybe we should move it to seven-six. <laughs> what difference does it make? You're not getting over that one either uh, mm-hmm. as well. And that seems to be where the problem comes in with the Fed. Right. And we've seen prices in certain areas rise, as as I just mentioned. So whether it's housing, health care, things like that. Um, but we haven't seen wage increases in the way that maybe some people thought we would, even though, as you mentioned, the measurement of inflation hasn't really been running that hot. But we have seen a lot of buybacks. It uh, looks like, I believe, almost $5 trillion from corporations buying back their own stock. Do you think that factors into why there hasn't been the wage inflation of, as far as companies not investing in people, property, plant equipment, uh, things like that, and infrastructure, and then maybe using that money for financialization to just boost the stock price? Or how, yeah. how do you look at that? There's, I think there's two separate issues here to try and uh, pull apart. And the first one is that if you look at wages, uh, first of all, the unemployment rate is at a 50-year low at 3.5%. Mm-hmm. And actually, we, we've, we've pointed out that uh, there is unemployment data that I've seen back to 1890. Wow. And any time that the unemployment rate has been 3.5%, we have been, as a country, in the middle of a hot war. The last time it was at this level was 50 years ago. We were in the middle of the Vietnam War. And then in the 1950s during the Korean War and then during World War II. Why is that? Because what, the reason the unemployment rate was so low was that you took a big chunk of the working age population, and that would be young male men, and you stuck them in the military. And so you reduced the, the uh, supply of workers increasing the demand to take women or older people. And that's why you had the unemployment rate so low. But this time at three and a half percent, we're not in the middle of a hot war. We don't have a a 12 million man army like we did in World War II to get down under 3%. Uh, And this is the first time we've seen in peacetime the unemployment rate this low in 100 years. So the unemployment rate is extraordinarily low. And to throw in another fun statistic for you, the, uh, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does this thing called the JOLTS report, which is job uh, turnover and uh, our, our job openings and labor turnover. That's where the, the acronym JOLTS comes from. So they calculate how many people are looking for jobs in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they come up with a number of 7 million. There are 7 million people looking for jobs. Uh, I'm sorry, there's 7 million job openings in the United States, advertising for somebody, 7 million. The unemployment rate says there's 6 million people unemployed. Mm-hmm. There are more job openings than people unemployed. Now, obviously, not everybody can fill every one of those jobs because some of those jobs require skill sets that some of the unemployed don't have. But the point is, is that given all of this and given standard economics, wage inflation should be booming right now, absolutely booming. Mm-hmm. We have a labor shortage is what we've got going on in this country right now. And it's not. Now, to be, cl- to be fair, wage growth is higher than the inflation rate. It's running in the high twos, mm-hmm. like two, two, eight to three percent, where the inflation rate's running in the mid to low twos. So there is real growth in wages every year. 
And the administration has been touting that as well, but it should be growing a lot more than that since we actually are looking for 7 million people in a country that only has 6 million unemployed. And it's been a real head scratcher for the economic community to explain why it's not working properly. The model of the tightness in the labor market not producing wage growth. Like I said, to be fair, it's producing some, but mm-hmm. it should be producing a whole lot more. Now, to your other point about buybacks, uh, I think that, that there's a different, that's a different dynamic altogether, mm-hmm. what you're seeing with buybacks. Um, in the post-crisis era since 2009, if you add up the flow into equity funds, uh, both ETF and open-ended funds, if you add up the flow into both of them, it's been essentially zero since 2009. If you add in the flows of foreigners and households buying stocks directly, the flow has been essentially zero, Federal Reserve orderly flow fund statistics. So there's been no net new buying. Oh, wait, wait, we've had a giant bull market. How can there be no net new buyers? And I think the answer is, is because if you look at, there has been a $5 trillion buyer in the post-crisis era, and that has been corporations through buybacks. Why have they been buying so much? Because we've got record low interest rates, and we've got the, the Federal Reserve greasing the skids to make sure that the bond market is wide open, and corporations are saying, you know what, we can borrow money and we can buy back our stock. That's an easy trade, and they've been doing a lot of that. And in fact, that is what I believe is the things that has been powering the market higher. Is it right or is it wrong? Yeah, we could debate that. It's not going away. That's the one thing I would say about it either way. The, board, the corporate buybacks are going to stay with us unless or until you get a serious rise in interest rates that would make it uneconomic to do it. And as we record here today, the 30-year Treasury just made a new all-time low yield. So we're now, not only we're nowhere near a rise in interest rates, we're going in the opposite direction. We're making new record lows. So it's going to continue, I think, for a while. Yeah, and, and that's a perfect segue into talking a little bit about rates. So going back to the crisis, as you mentioned, we, we pumped in a ton of liquidity. You know, rates came down uh, for good reason. And then there was talk about trying to normalize rates, maybe – you know, roll off the balance sheet there somewhere between 2012, I'll call it, and and 2016. And then it's we arguable we had a recession in 2016, and maybe it wasn't measured as one, but that's when oil prices broke. Um, and we've talked about this on the podcast as far as normalizing rates to, you know, talking about the 10-year at maybe 4 or 5 6%. Uh, range and then you know there's been some debate as what really is normal and 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 maybe you can't look at it that way and so what's your view on on that piece? Uh, I'll start off at the at the outset and say I am a bond bull. I have been a giant bond bull. Mm-hmm. I remain a giant bond bull. I still think that interest rates are going to continue to trend lower. I think there's three dynamics that have been pushing rates down. The first one is what we talked about in the last segment. There's no inflation and there's substitution and there's really the inflation rate around the world 
if you look at the OECD countries, the top 20 countries in the world, there's like, I think the Netherlands is the only one that has an inflation rate above two and a half. That's it. I'm talking about core inflation, by the way, here, um, leaving energy off the, off the table, um, is above two and a half percent. So right there, the, the fair value for interest rates, if you're going to tell me that there's zero inflation uh, or very low inflation, you're already down into like the, something that starts with the two handle. Uh, maybe a three-handle, but definitely a two-handle. Add to that that while the U.S. economy has been showing some decent signs of growing, the rest of the world has not. Europe is probably in recession right now. I think that's not even a controversial call anymore, even though it's not been officially listed as such. Uh, the Japanese economy is produced some of the worst numbers in 2018 that it has in the post-crisis era. And the, the Chinese economy before the virus was already printing 30-year lows in their GDP. So now you add in weak growth and the fair value of interest rates goes down to probably a two or a one handle. You throw in there demographics uh, as well too. And in the developed world, the developed world, the 20 largest countries, there's almost 300 million people that are over the age of 65. That's nearly the population of the United States. The United States about 340 million people. Uh, and those people are the ones that hold the vast majority of wealth. Somewhere around 75% of the wealth is held by people over the age of 65. The proper investment for somebody of that age is not 100% equities, but it's some version of a 60-40 portfolio. So you've got a gigantic bid for fixed income assets by an aging population that holds wealth. That's pushing rates down so much so. I've argued what's been unusual about interest rates is that they're all throughout the developed world, they're all negative real yields. They're all below the inflation rate because I think that this giant bid that you've seen out of aging demographics it's been pushing rates down. So what I'm saying is I haven't even opened up the box of central bank liquidity. And without that, I could make the argument to you that the fair value of interest rates in the U.S., talking about the 10-year yield, should start with a one handle. The fair value of interest rates in Europe should start with a zero on it, maybe or maybe zero itself. Mm-hmm. Now, you, now you add in easy central in money printing and that gets you to negative rates so what I, or let me rephrase let me phrase this this way in 1980 if the fair value of interest rates in 1980 was around 10 or 11 percent the central bank could never produce negative interest rates they could never um they could never you, you know take it a thousand basis points below fair value mm-hmm. but in 2019 if the fair value is plus 25 basis points on the 10-year German Bund, we've actually seen some modeling done that that's actually the number. Well, yeah, they could then produce easy money that will get them to minus 25 or minus 50. And so that's where I like to think of it. Or in the football analogy I like to use, the fair value got interest rates to, you know, to the two-yard line. The gold line would be zero. And the central bank punched it in to negative interest rates. So I'm a bond bull. Because I think that that these interest rates should be this low. Right now, last thought for you about interest rates. 
if you look at the 20 largest countries in the um, 20 largest countries in the, the developed world, their their treasury securities uh, from their policy rate all the way to the 30 year, there is no interest rate above 2% left in the developed world. The highest interest rate in the developed world is our 30 year, which is at a record blow at 190. So I always like to say to people, you want to know what a big interest rate is, a big fat yield that you would sell your children for if you can grab your hand, grab it, grab it with both hands? It's 2%. That's the world we live in right now. We are in a world of very, very low interest rates. And that is going to continue to be that way, I think, at least until something changes or something breaks. Yeah, and you've talked about in the past the one saving grace is U.S. having the positive real yields um, and looking at spreads even between uh, Germany and U.S. Um, and s- some relationships there. I, I looked at some research talking about in past um, cutting cycles, if a recession does come, we're looking at maybe three, 400 basis points, which would take us into negative territory. What's your thought on that piece? Obviously, you know, recession is maybe kind of flashing yellow, um, not not quite green yet, but we're 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 getting long in the tooth here to where um, you know if something if something does happen, and obviously the Fed is is already talking about large scale asset purchases and maybe more cuts if needed. Right. Um, I think that as far as uh, as far as those interest rates go, let's. Keep in mind a couple of things about interest rates as well, too. For the first time ever, when I say ever, I mean, I got data on this back in the 1950s. The U.S. has the highest interest rates in the developed world. You know, mm-hmm. the, the highest 30 year is ours. The highest 10 year is ours. Uh, Canada has a slightly higher policy rate at 175. I grade us at 162 and a half, the halfway point between 150 and 175. But yeah, they're only 13 basis points away, not far away. Our rates are very, very high. That has enabled negative interest rates to persist in Europe and in Japan. Because on its face, negative interest rates are a disaster for the financial system. Um, I, I, like, I, I say this metaphorically. Let's say you, you're, it's the Middle Ages, the Renaissance. And we're in Florence because it was invented there. The fractional banking system was invented in Florence in the Renaissance. You were there in the room when they invented the fractional banking system. And they said, okay, here's how it's going to work. You know, a lira comes in because it's Florence, it's the 15th century. And we're going to put 10p in, the, in an account called the reserve account. The other 90%, other 90 cents, we're going to lend it out or we're going to buy securities. Why are we going to do that? Because they all have a positive interest rate. We will gather an income. And if you raised your hand in the 15th century, you say, well, what happens when interest rates go negative? Of course, you would have been asked to leave the room because you don't understand how the market works. Right. But that's exactly that's exactly what's happened. And so the reason I bring that up is it doesn't work. It does not work. Negative interest rates are a disaster for the financial community. The only reason, and you could see it in the bank stock index in Europe is was recently at a 30-year low in the last couple of months. The bank stock index in Japan is at a 40-year low. And the only reason it's at a 40-year low is they started the index 40 years ago. So we don't know actually how, how bad it would be for some of those banks as well. And so we, by being the reserve currency, the biggest market, 
having the highest interest rates in the world enable negative interest rates. Now, to the Fed's credit, they have come out and said they think negative interest rates are a mistake. Right. They don't think they work, and they don't have any interest in going to negative interest rates in the United States. I believe them. I believe them that they're sincere in that statement. But my fear has always been, it's easy to say when things are going well, that we're, we have limited tools, we won't go to negative rates, and the like. But when faced with negative payroll reports, that would be a recession, plunging markets, falling confidence, crisis atmosphere, I think that they throw all that out the window because it's the, la- the last thing a central bank could ever do, although they could, they should, is Jay Paul walk up to the microphone, whoever's the Fed chairman, and say, I do have limited tools and I can't fix this, and then turn around and leave. No, you'll be replaced and somebody will. So they don't want to go to negative rates. I believe they're sincere, but I feel like they're going to be forced into it. And what you've seen them talk about, even through today, is this idea of yield curve control and more QE because they need to give the – yield curve control is they will target an interest rate like the 10-year 1%, and they will target it not to go above or below 1%. Japan did yield curve control or has been since 2016. It hasn't worked have worked being defined as improving their economy. We did some version of yield curve control after World War II all the way through the early 1950s. It did not work. And that's always been a criticism of mine of central banks. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, Lael Brainerd is the one who's been behind yield curve control. She's a Fed governor. And I joke, does she sit in her office going, yelling out, yelling out of her office at the staff, quick, find me an idea that doesn't work. Good, let's adopt it. Because that's essentially what yield curve control is. Uh, is it's something that has a history of not working. And their excuse is, well, it's less evasive than negative interest rates. Well, you're, not, you're just picking a lesser of two evils. You know, you're not actually picking anything that, that is, is gone well. So I do think that negative rates is a disaster. And I do think that the Fed knows that. And I think that they're trying to come up with something that's going to not help but be less disastrous in the form of yield curve control, because they do have limited tools. They cannot do things like they used to in the past. They just can't say that. You know, it, it's kind of like if you go to a doctor and you've got terminal cancer, the doctor's not just going to look at you and go, you know what, you're toast. I'm sorry, I can't help you. Of course, they're going to try. They're going to they're make you, even if it's a placebo, at least make you think they're trying. And that's kind of the way the central bankers are, too. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to mention uh, Lael Brainerd before you brought her up there. I just saw the article pass through. Um, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal and, and reporting on that yield curve targeting and control. And obviously, we won't go into it too much about the debate versus QE, not QE, because uh, you've covered that on, on some other QE. shows. It is QE. <laughs> Right. So so I think there's the debate about looking at the 30 30 day bills and and it's just on the short end of the curve. But obviously, you know, the balance sheet is increasing. So, yeah. Any thoughts on that piece tying into large scale asset purchases and kind of 
it seems like it's really trying to do the same thing of, yeah, of it, pinning rates it, down. It, exactly. Let's talk about a repurchase agreement, what that is in a very simple term. Repurchase agreement is uh, I buy some securities, securities, maybe they're stocks, maybe they're bonds. I buy some securities. Okay, I just bought, well, let's take a nice round number, a billion dollars. I just bought a billion dollars worth of five-year note. Okay, I don't have a billion dollars. But I now own a uh, billion dollars of five-year notes, and I can use that as collateral to get a loan. And so I turn right around to the dealer that sold them to me and says, I will pledge these back to you if you give me a loan to pay for this purchase. And you'll usually make the loan one day overnight. Why? Because if I made it 30 days and I sold the bond tomorrow, I'd be responsible to pay 29 days more of interest. And I don't want to do that. So I just make it over. I make it a one day loan and I just keep rolling it over every day until I sell those securities. That's what a repurchase loan is. It's a securities financing tool. By the Fed stepping in and pumping the market full of repo, supplying repo to the dealers, so they could turn around and supply it to the rest of the market, their hedge fund clients and other financial institutions, they're making it easier to finance transactions, securities transactions, especially leveraged transactions. It is supportive of financial markets. That's why it's QE. It's not QE that, oh, the Fed repo is going straight into the FANG stocks. You know, I can't say that there's that direct relationship, but I can say the dealers are stuffed full of money, willing, willing, and able to give you a loan to buy securities, and you will do it, and that will be very, very supportive for them, and that is increasing the balance sheet. So this is helping markets go up. I think that you know since October 11th, which is the day that they announced that they were going to start purchasing T-bills and and expanding their balance sheet and the whole repo program uh, got somewhat formalized, the stock market's gains have been something like 30, 35% per annum. It's been rising at a 30, 35% per annum period since that day. So it has been going on. And so finally, the Fed likes to use forward guidance. Forward guidance is a fancy term for, they'll just tell us what they're gonna do. Well, the market uses forward guidance on the Fed. The market is forward guiding the Fed, telling them what they're going to do. And the market has told them that this is QE because they forward guided this to being QE. The reason I bring that up is that the Fed has made noise that in the second quarter around April, they're going to start thinking about pulling back on their purchases of bills and maybe pulling back on their supplying of repo. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see, and I'm going to be careful on this word here, securities markets, because I'm not going to pin it to the stock market or the bond market, but I'm going to pin it to the markets in general, you're reducing the amount of lending, you're reducing the amount of liquidity, you will probably see an uptick in volatility in these markets if they indeed decide to pull back in the second quarter. Right. And then, then of course, that's assuming they do pull back, which could change, obviously, depending, obviously, they say they're data dependent, Right. It's a um, term that I, that's a term I don't know what it means. I've asked <laughs> I, I don't know what data dependent means. I mean, um, there is an infinite amount of data and you selectively pick what is what supports your pre-health view. Uh, you know, right. so it's a fancy way of saying I'm making it up as I go along. 
Right. And so the, I think the last piece on this is kind of an interesting path to go down as far as when you looked at repo, when it spiked up to 8 10%, something like that. Um, and then you look at, obviously, all of these forces, as we talked about, pulling down uh, rates and inflation, the debt, demographics, technology. Um, but there's this whole other piece that's being talked about is when inflation does eventually pick up or if it ever does. I saw the uh, cover, I think it was a couple of years ago on Bloomberg Business Week with the inflation is dead cover. Um, that was last year. It was last year. year. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so now, and you've talked about okay, the impetus for the balance sheet to be on un, to unwind it is is if we do get inflation, and but it's just so hard, especially like you said right now that that the thirty year is hitting all time low. You know, the ten year the all time low is I think one spot three six. And it looks like we could easily take that out too. So, how do you reckon? Mm-hmm. We're only ten base. We're only ten basis points away from the uh, from the all time low in the ten year right now. So it's not far away. Yeah. Um, so how do you reconcile that piece as far as you know inf- inflation actually coming into play there, uh, and 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 maybe forcing the Fed's hand. And then, and then it's you know we've had conversations on, on the show about the yield curve control and say okay they'll they'll just come in with more uh, large scale asset purchases and try to pin rates you know even lower or as, or as low as they can even if things do get out of control or start heating up beyond their control. Yeah, um, I made the case you know in previous segments here that you know inflation is down and it's not going to come back. And uh, I, I, I threw in a caveat in there that it's not going to come back unless something changes, unless mm-hmm. we br- unless we break something. Uh, we break yeah. something that could cause inflation to come up. And I might add that as we speak now, there's a giant open question that we might actually be breaking something, and that is the global supply chain with this coronavirus that has been going around the world, you know, we all know it's in Japan, we all know it's in China, but we're starting to see some real pickups in the numbers in South Korea and in Japan as well too. And if these numbers continue, the global supply chain, I think, could be impaired more than people think. And I know Wall Street has been using this never-ending series of irrationalizations. First, it was temporary and transitory. And this week now, it's the, it's demand delayed, not demand destroyed. You know, so we've got this creeping definition coming along, and it could be, you know, it could mark a deglobalization. I saw Jim Cramer interview Larry Kudlow today on CNBC, and Jim Cramer said, I know, roll, eyes roll. Jim Cramer said that um, we have three weeks left of insulin before we start seeing an insulin shortage in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's open questions whether or not the Chinese can continue to supply it. Now, why is that? Because China's the cheap place to get insulin. They are the big manufacturer of it. Not the only one, but they're the big manufacturer of it. And he asked Larry, he goes, this is wrong. We've got to protect ourselves from this. In other words, deglobalize. In other words, we've got to look at all these big fat margins that these companies have. We've got to look at all these big low inflation rates we have. Because we produce all this stuff that's somewhat important in China, but now we can't rely on China anymore. 
So we got to pull out of China and we got to go to higher cost places in order to have uh, a backup just in case. So this whole idea that it's going to be temporary or demand delayed, uh, there's an argument to be made that it could be somewhat permanent, what we're seeing, depending on how bad this gets. That will produce inflation. If it produces inflation, it will produce the worst outcome in the post-crisis era. If you get rising inflation, and again, we have not had it since the uh, financial crisis, you will get falling stock prices and falling bond prices. Yesterday, Morgan Stanley purchased E-Trade for $5 billion. This follows on Schwab spending a zillion dollars purchasing um, TD Ameritrade. Everybody's running headlong into the wealth management business. What is the assumption driving wealth management? We have this great idea for wealthy people. It's the 60-40 portfolio. You put 60% of your money in stocks and 40% of your money in bonds. Why? Because the stock market goes up, you make money. When things get dicey, the bond market rallies and you make money on the 40% leg. So even though you underperform a rising market, you outperform on the downside with less volatility. And most people think that's a good deal. And the whole wealth management business is built around this. You get inflation, that blows up. Stocks and bonds both go down together. And then everybody calls their wealth manager and says, how do I make money? And the answer is you don't, you lose money because everything's going down at that point. That's an alien concept because in the post-crisis era, that has not been the case at all. So if we wind up seeing something break and we see some version of deglobalization or something like that, that causes an uptick of inflation that produces higher interest rates, that is going to be bad for bond prices, obviously. It's going to be bad for stock prices because what has got stock prices at a 20 forward PE ratio? Big fat valuations is high margins, cheap cost of production. Well, your cost of production is going to go up. In other words, here's what's going to happen with the stock market. What I just said about the globalization, everything stays the same, but your multiple goes from 20 to 15. All right, we just took 25% off the stock market. And everybody's freaking out because we're having a major bear market. That's what you could wind up having happen is that your margins are going to go down, your growth of earnings is going to go down, and your big valuations are going to come in as well, too, because we can't go to China and just produce it cheaply anymore because we can't trust them anymore to be there. Then uh, they, they, And especially if you do something that is in the you know, uh, strategic or important category like pharmaceuticals or something like that, you have to move away from them, and that's going to produce more inflation. That remains to be seen whether or not it happens, but that's my fear. That makes a lot of sense, and I, I, I've read your research on the, looking at RIAs and looking at um, the amount of money invested in this type of 60-40 portfolio, whether it's indexed or in a robo-advisor or, or any solution that's out there that's a lot easier nowadays. Um, the one question I would have there is looking at, okay, if we get, obviously, equities falling and then we have you know, bonds falling and, and yields going up, how do you reconcile maybe a, a flood of money into long bonds as that safe haven? Some people have talked about, well, maybe next time it will be something more like, more like gold or real assets. 
but do you see uh, money flowing into to the long bond um, in that type of scenario, or maybe money flows in but yields would just keep going up on the long yeah. end, especially? Well, I think that you know, in the next downturn, if we're having it now, if we're in the process of breaking it, what you wind up doing is this would this would mark the end of the bull market in bonds. You know, you mm-hmm. have one more push down as yeah. everybody hides in bonds. Um, the reason everybody hides in bonds is a very simple argument, especially like the 10-year or the five-year, right? Plow your money into the five-year. Uh, what's the worst case scenario? Uh, you lose 2%, you lose 3%. Stick around in FANG stocks. What's your worst case scenario? You lose two-thirds of your money. That's why you put your money <laughs> exactly. in. That's why you put your money in bonds, just because they won't lose you money. But I think if we're in the process of, of breaking and deglobalizing, this would produce the end of the 35 or 37-year-old bull market in bonds, the final push down, because then coming out of the other side, we would actually wind up having inflation. So if we're, if we're about to deglobalize, I do think that, you know, eventually bonds are going to be the loser. And I've always said that, you know, the, the funny thing about Wall Street for the last 15 years has always been Bank of America released their survey again this week. The top three things that everybody's fearing, uh, the top three concerns everybody has. Um, number two was the popping of the bond bubble. And number three was the coronavirus. The bond market's rally for the, since 2009 is the best rally it's had on a total return basis in 5,000 years. Sidney Homer and Richard Stoller wrote the book, A History of Interest Rates that traces them back to 3000 B.C. Mm-hmm. You won't find a better 10-year period to have been long bonds than the last 10 years. And what has wow. Wall, ar- Wall Street argued that whole 10 years? What happens if the bond bubble perks, pricks? I've argued, <laughs> no, your argument should be, what if you're underinvested and not pressing lower rates as hard as you can? That's what they've been missing. But eventually, if what I'm saying is, oh, so we're finally going to get the bond bubble prick? Yes, and your reward is going to be we'll have the stock market. Do, you know, because everybody thinks the bond bubble will prick. And the stock market will have like one, uh, like a 2% correction in a couple of wobbly days and then ignore it and keep going up as the bond market sells off. No, it will wreak havoc on the stock market if the bond bubble pricks. You will lose way more money in the stock market if it pricks. That's the fear that inflation brings, is that when you start driving up rates, back to what I said earlier, you've now ended the buyback. You end the buybacks because now rates are going up and it's too expensive to borrow to buy back my stock. There is no inflow in the stocks. There is no inflow from foreigners or direct Mm -hmm. buying purchases. There is no inflow. It's all been buyback purchases. You take that away, the stock market's in trouble. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And there's been talk about a melt-up. I know Jeremy Grantham um, or... GMO has, has written about this and others as well. And I think, like you mentioned, if looking at the 10-year, I think you could easily see it getting to 100 uh, bips or 50 um, or even less. Uh, but And then when you look at the buybacks, do you think that will even fuel that even more, maybe more M- M&A activity and more buybacks to kind of that, get that blow-off top? Yeah, I don't think you get the blow-off top in bonds based on good news. I think you'll get the block top in bonds based on bad news. Based on talk of recession, plunging on plunging employment, spiking unemployment, uh, maybe wobbly financial markets or something like that, that will give you the blow off in bonds. Bonds will continue to grind at low rates 
if you continue to give them no inflation and weak growth overseas. But if you want to push 50 basis points, you need, you need something bad for 50 basis points. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I said, if that something bad is going to produce inflation on the back end, we'll go down to 50 basis points and then we'll rip everybody's face off on the other side is what was, mm-hmm. is what will wind up happening with that move. Yeah. And the, so switching on to one risk that you've talked about that maybe you think the market is discounting is uh, or not looking at properly is the election. And you've done a lot of work on with prediction markets and looking at some of the scenarios that could unfold. So let's talk a little bit about that piece, because I think that's also really interesting to look at. Um, the most important thing with elections is to understand what is expected. And because so often, whether you're watching cable news or you're talking to your relatives at Thanksgiving dinner, um, what do you think is going to happen in the election? Everybody tells you what they want to happen in the election, mm-hmm. not what is expected generally. Now, there's a couple ways you could do that. You can look at the polls. Uh, you could put together a model based off that. 538 Nate Silver's done is probably as good a job as anybody. I've argued there's an even better way to do that, and that's the prediction markets, the, the election betting markets. I've argued that the election betting markets are very good at discounting what will happen. And let me be clear here. All they are is the aggregation of all known information into one number, a probability. Bernie Sanders right now is trading at a 59% probability that he'll be the Democrat nominee. Joe Biden is trading at a 20% chance that he'll be the nominee as well, too. Now, can those markets be manipulated? In theory, yes. But if you go look at Nate Silver's models that um, use everything but the election markets, they say the same thing. So it's uh, in the polls, say the same thing. So that so they're not out of line. So that tends to make me believe that they're not manipulated. Now, what's the benefit of the election markets? They react real fast. So Wednesday night, we're talking the same week as the Nevada uh, debate. Wednesday night was the Nevada debate and Bloomberg wasn't doing well. And the betting markets tanked as Bloomberg was fumbling to finish his answers, the betting markets were tanking. The pundits will have to wait 10 days to get six polls to confirm that it hurt them. The betting market took 10 seconds to tell you that this is not good. And, it, and you know, you knew, in fact, I was tweeting out during the debate, I wrote that, you know, Bloomberg crapped the bed, according to the betting market. And he mm-hmm. was still an hour from finishing the debate uh, at that point. So that's where I think that they're very, very useful. If they get it wrong, sure. The betting markets had um, Sanders at 78% chance to win the Iowa. Of course, they haven't finished counting yet. Uh, but if he did win, it was by a narrow margin. And people said, you see, the betting market got it wrong. I said, no, everybody got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Nate Silver's model got it wrong. The polls got it wrong. The polls all had Sanders winning it. The bidding market's got it wrong as well, too. So that's all they are. So what are they telling us? That unless we've gotten it wrong, and there's always that possibility that we're just flat out wrong with our assessments, 
that the polls are all wrong and everything else, Sanders is going to be the nominee. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's 59 to 20 over Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this coming weekend will be the Nevada uh, caucuses, and then the following weekend will be, um, on the 29th, will be the South Carolina primary, and then we'll have Super Tuesday on March 3rd. We could be 10 days away from it being a accepted fact that Sanders will be the nominee uh, of, the, of the Democrat Party. The betting markets are also telling us that there's almost a one-for-one correlation between Sanders becoming the nominee and Trump winning the presidency. The, the higher Sanders goes to win the nominee nomination, the higher Trump goes to win the general election, mm-hmm. meaning that the betting markets are telling us what we've always thought. Sanders cannot win a general election. Mm-hmm. Now, that can, that can change. I actually, I've actually argued it probably will change. I said, you know, if, if, if you ask me what's going to happen here, I said, Sanders will win Nevada. He'll, he's got 89, he's trading 89% chance of winning Nevada in the betting market. Uh, Sanders will romp at Super Tuesday, win California and a bunch of other states. And coming out of it, the exception, the, the, the accepted wisdom will be Sanders is the nominee, can't win. Then in late March, early April, I think we're going to get a bunch of polls that say, no, he actually can win. And then the market will freak out because he can win. Because what those polls will probably say at the same time, and I'm not making this up because all of this usually happens in waves. And that is the polls will say Sanders could win. The polls will say that all the Democrat socialists that AOC is, is endorsing, it's going to win, that the Democrats could take the Senate. And AOC, if she's not the majority leader, could be the Speaker of the House and Sanders could be the president. Markets will freak out. They'll just freak out on that. But then I think it'll come around later on in the year if he actually is the nominee and say, no, he actually can't win. And that was just the freak out that we're going to have. But it won't be just, oh, well, Sanders can be the nominee. It's over. Trump wins. That's it. What's the next story? There'll be there'll be variations in that story as we move along. Right. And do you have any thoughts on, let's say we do get Sanders being elected as president, as far as some of the policies that he might put forth, looking at MMT or some of these other schemes to to print money, basically, or, or whether it's infrastructure spending um, to, to maybe cause inflation or the long end of the curve to kind of come up there? If Sanders gets 63 million Americans to vote for him, and that's about what it would take, and he would get a majority of the Electoral College to vote for him, and assuming a majority of the uh, popular vote to vote for him too, that is not happening in isolation. Mm-hmm. The American public is not going to walk in there and say, I want to vote for the 79-year-old commie as president, but then <laughs> I also want to vote for the right-wing evangelical conservative to be my representative. They're mm-hmm. not doing both at the same time. They're going to vote for the 79-year-old commie. They're going to vote for the Democrat socialist. They're going to sweep the Democrats into power with a left-wing agenda. And there will be no stopping Sanders. There will be, mm-hmm. no, there will be no stopping him at, at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think, yes, you will get free college tuition. You will get MMT. You will get all of that. It all comes with the territory is what, it, is what it comes with. You will not get, I don't think if Sanders wins, I don't think the Republicans hold 
the Senate. They lose the Senate, too. And mm-hmm. I think that basically, I think AOC runs the House if he wins. Uh, and it's going to. So don't give me this. Well, you know, his policies don't make sense and they, they're going to happen. They're absolutely going to happen mm-hmm. because all of that will happen. If he loses, none of that happens. Right. The Democrats maybe hold the House, but don't do as well. They hold the, the, the Republicans hold the Senate. Trump comes back in the power as well, too. <clears throat> so that on the other side, that always happens, too. So, like I said, you know, like I said, they don't they don't seek out the commie to be president and then vote a Republican at the same time. They don't do it that way. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, they come elections come in waves. And I expect that the election would be a, would be a wave. So, yeah, I think he'll give us MMT. And I think he'll give us, you know, a debt jubilee on college education. And I think he'll force companies to put employees on their boards and all of these other things that he's been, you know, Medicare for all and all of that stuff will be on a fast track to happening if he wins, because he will have the Congress that will have the predisposition to want to make that happen, too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that would really cause some some shifts in markets based on some of the other scenarios that we talked about with with inflation and, and maybe equities and, and fixed income falling at once and different scenarios like that. Yeah, I think it wouldn't be good. I don't think it would be good at all because I think that, you know, uh, at my heart, I'm an Austrian libertarian. And I think one of the things that has made the U.S. economy so successful is the creative destruction that the U.S. economy is engaged in. Is that the, you know, we are allowed to create new businesses, transformative companies. We are allowed to turn things over. In, in, if you look at a list of the 20 largest electronics companies in Japan, and you looked at a list of the 20 largest electronics companies in, in Japan in 1950, so you looked at it 70 years ago, 18 of those companies are the same companies today as they were 70 years ago. That is not a virtue. They think that's a virtue. You need to have that creative destruction to allow economies to breathe and evolve and change. We allow that. And that is why that has been the strength of our economy. What Sanders would propose is, no, those 70 companies would be supported by the government and they would never, ever change. And nothing would ever be allowed to change. That is the biggest problem Japan has. They don't change anything. That is the biggest benefit that our country has. One of the problems that they have in Europe, too, they have all these big, they have all these big multinational companies that, you know, do a crappy job at what they do, but they never, ever allow anything to come in in terms of being a transformative company to change. That's why all of the transformative companies come out of the United States, actually come out of California, too, but come out of the, come out of the United States. There is no fang stocks that have been created in, in Japan or in Europe or anything else. And there's a couple maybe that, you know, in China, but they're just knockoffs of Amazon and Facebook, you know, and Alibaba and Tencent and mm-hmm. all the rest of them. They're not, they're not create, they're not original companies to them. Uh, but so it, that's our benefit. And what that socialist movement suggests is we're not going to allow that kind of change because we're going to have to put workers on the boards of these companies. We can't allow another Mark Zuckerberg to come in 
and wreck that company. We can't allow another Jeff Bezos to come in or an Apple to come in and take that company's business away because we want those workers to be employed. So we're going to prevent anybody from doing that. So everything, so nothing changes. That is the death nail of an economy when nothing changes. Yeah, that's really interesting when you frame it like that. I also recommend to listeners to check out your, um, there's a YouTube video of you on the double line panel uh, with some other folks, Steve Romick from FPA and uh, Danielle Martino Booth. But I know Gunlock has talked about, and he's put up a chart showing Japanese equities you know, falling and never re- recovering from 89. And same thing with Europe never recovered so when you and obviously there's a lot of demographics issues and and structural issues but when you kind of paint that picture it it actually kind of makes a lot of sense and shows how much is really riding on the election to have a a big regime change like that right exactly you know you know i'd like to think you know you know you've got you know sony is the big electronics company in in the in um japan i'd like to think that if the tech stocks if the tech industry if the tech stocks peak and went down for 31 years, that 31 years later, you would not have Amazon, Facebook, Apple, um, and Google being dominant companies anymore. We would have just basically gutted them for whoever comes next, because that's the way economy breathes. Sony should have been gutted 20 years ago, they, you know, but we don't let them get gutted. And that is the problem that the Japanese economy faces, is that they're afraid to, I get it, you know, we made that mistake with the auto industry in 2008. We should have let the auto industry uh, restructure itself, but we didn't. We bailed them out. Uh, and that has been, I think, one of the big problems that the auto industry has, and which is why I think Tesla, they opened the door to Tesla by doing that. Fortunately, we're in an economy that you can create a Tesla that could come in and potentially be that transformative company that can change the, uh, uh, the auto companies. By the way, two things can be true at the same time. You can be a transformative company that is going to change an industry and be grossly overvalued at the same time. Right. And that's, that's, that's what I think Tesla is. It's both. It's not one or the other. Yeah, that, that's a really great point. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this was great. Why don't you tell listeners where they can um, follow you and, and read more of your work? We're going to link your Twitter handle and uh, um, a couple videos and some research in the in the show notes. Yeah, I um, probably the best place for somebody who's not familiar with our stuff is to start with, with at Bianco Research or follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, that will also drive you to our, um, our website. Um, we are a subscription-based service for institutional investors. So most of the stuff that we do is behind the password, but I let it leak out, not all of it, but a good part of it to leak out um, on Twitter and on LinkedIn uh, as well. So I'm pretty active on those formats too. Um, if you send me a question, I'll do my best to answer it. I get a lot of them, but I do my best to try and to answer them um, as well too. You search my name. You've mentioned I do a lot of podcasts like this uh, in other formats, too. Uh, you could probably pick up on um, some of those as well. So at Bianco Research, BiancoResearch.com, or follow me, Jim Bianco, James Bianco, on LinkedIn. Those would probably be the best places to start. Great. Well, thanks so much, Jim. We really appreciate it.
Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.